Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. And welcome to Loving Liberty. Off and running for a brand new week. I was uh, I was more than just a little bit interested to see that this last weekend, Saturday to be ex- uh, to be precise, uh, June 8th was the 70th anniversary of the publication of George Orwell's 1984. I'm sorry, I'm waiting for the chill that went up your spine to, to finish doing its thing. Um, you know, I graduated high school in 1984, so, you know, I, let me give you full disclosure. Yes, as a member of the class of 84, dude, um, 84 is a year that really stood out. And, of course, we were required to read 1984 when I was a sophomore in high school. I believe the drama club actually did a production of 1984 for uh, their play that, uh, that year. But it wasn't until about 10 or 12 years ago that I picked up a copy of 1984 and read it again, this time with a little bit of adult understanding and, and with a whole bunch more comprehension about what freedom means and what totalitarianism means. And it was a much different experience. And, and suddenly I found myself, like a lot of people, wondering, wow, did, uh, did Orwell mean for this to be a warning to the world? Or was this an instruction manual? Because... You know, even 12 years ago, there there were things that, that really seemed to stand out as, um, you know, problematic, as in they could have been ripped from the pages of 1984. So I saw a lot of articles written over the weekend. Uh, I would strongly recommend um, if you can if you can go to the fee website, fee.org, F-E-E dot O-R-G, you'll find some great material there. But the thing that I found most interesting was some people were saying, look, you know, this don't try to don't try to read more into 1984 than there actually is. And on the one hand, I get that warning. It's not like, yes, you know, modern America today, you know, the, the, the modern first world. It's a mirror image of Oceania as described in, in Orwell's novel. It's not. However, there were some things that he called with astonishing accuracy things that that we see around us every day in fact we just take them as normal because you know that's just part of life let me give you a couple of examples among the predictions that he made was this ubiquitous telescreen you read about it in the novel maybe if you've seen the the video or the the film version there's a couple different versions of it That's the two-way method of broadcasting continuous propaganda while simultaneously surveilling the people of Oceania. Now, I'm just going to ask you to consider, compared to 20 years ago, much less 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, how prominent were screens in your life? And I'm talking screens of any kind. Other than the windscreen on your car, as our British uh, compadres would say, Maybe you had a television, but even TVs weren't that common in 1949. But today they're everywhere. Screens are everywhere. And it's not just televisions. Computer monitors, tablets, 
probably the most ubiquitous screen in our life is the one we carry around with us in the form of a smartphone. And these screens, to be fair, provide us with entertainment. They provide us with information. It's safe to say, though, that they are also an excellent delivery vehicle for the propaganda of our day. Just like the telescreens in the time of uh, 1984 in the setting, that dystopian setting of that novel, were a continuous source of broadcast as well as monitoring. Now, let's talk about the monitoring part for you and me. Yes, our screens bring lots of information to us at a moment's notice through apps and through being online. But haven't we just learned in recent years that many of our so-called smart appliances, not just our phones, not just our computers, but it could it could be your fridge, it could be your television set, it could be the little Alexa or, you know, Google Home thing that you have sitting there on your end table. They contain microphones. They listen to our conversations. They track key words and phrases that we use. And more often than not, we see the results pop up in the form of advertisements. Depending on what apps we're using or, you know, where we are online. If you haven't had this happen, I have to congratulate you because you must be leading a very sheltered life or spend very little time um, either talking about stuff that you're interested in buying or, for that matter, um, you know, you're just not around screens as much. But it's uncanny. Once it's been pointed out to you and once you see it, hey, we were just talking about, you know, weed and feed for the lawn. And suddenly I've got all this, you know, turf builder ads, these ads popping up everywhere. Somebody's listening. Somebody's paying attention. And while it might seem benign, the bottom line is somebody's listening. Also, our conveniences, whether it's our phone, uh, sometimes even our cars, track our movements and the locations that we visit. I think the most chilling example I've read about this was just within the last few months. And it was a guy who put this to the test. He had a couple of different cell phones and wanted to see, could we, from the metadata collected from my cell phone, Figure out where I have been spending my time. Now, one of his cell phones that he had with him was actually switched on. One of them was completely switched off. Both phones dutifully recorded every location he visited. It was a very simple thing to just go back and reconstruct. This is where I was at this time. This is where I was at that time. So suffice it to say... Yes, we have a very large surveillance umbrella under which we live. And while we may not see Big Brother's face staring back at us, it's no secret the tech giants who track and harvest all this data have been extremely willing to partner with our national security apparatus whenever it benefits them. And you add to this, if, if you have, again, been paying attention, how many places can you go in public now without being on camera? And I'm not just talking inside private businesses or, you know, in public, you know, facilities, courthouses or public administration buildings. You ever pay attention to all the cameras that have gone up for the purpose of monitoring traffic? They're everywhere. So what I'm saying here is we may not have the relentless tyranny of 1984, but I don't think it would be wrong to point out that we are setting up what could be a very good turnkey opportunity for somebody who has enough tyrannical ambition the right person slash wrong person just hasn't uh, got their hands on the reins of power yet 
Now, Orwell also wrote about how the uh, Ingsoch party in Oceania maintained control over the people through an endless state of war with some far off enemy. Ah, well, at least we don't have that, right? <laughs> well, that's how the that's how the party justified this continuous state of emergency and a garrison state mentality. Whether that war was with Eurasia or whether it was East Asia, they were always at war. They had always been at war. And what this did was it converted the people of Oceania into conscripted servants whose sole purpose in life was to support and uphold the aggressive power of the very state that was enslaving them. That's what all their effort was devoted to. Why? Because it's an emergency. We're fighting for our lives. But everything they did, every tank they built, every gun they assembled, every, everything they did in the, on behalf of the state was used to strengthen the state's control over them. The fruits of their labors were, they were told, were being used to protect them from that ever-shifting enemy. Okay, now let's liken this to our time. And I'm, I'm going to warn you right now, this is going to take, this is going to tick some people off. But in our day, the national security machine routinely gobbles up hundreds of billions of dollars, not all of which are actually on the budget. There's uh, there's a lot of black budget funds that are used. And just keep in mind, every dollar we're talking about here represents millions of productive citizens who have labored to create value somewhere, but have had this taken from them in the form of taxes and who have absolutely no say in how those funds are used. And our government uses those funds to build permanent military bases across the world. They routinely kill what they tell us are our enemies through drone strikes. And they intervene in conflicts that in no way affect our freedoms or our interests. And if it's not one enemy, then it's another. I mean, it's not a stretch to say, you know, at one point we were fighting ISIS because ISIS is the worst thing that could ever happen to humanity. And then they turn around and they're supporting ISIS because... There's somebody else who's now the the supposed enemy. I guess I look at it this way. And I apologize if it sounds ungrateful, but the more we send our armed forces abroad, the less free we appear to be here at home, where we're subjected to intense scrutiny and manhandling as if we were the potential enemies. Okay, there's a couple more points. I'll get to those on the other side of these commercials. If you want, look, if, if you need to rebut or even violently agree with what I'm sharing with you, feel free. 801-331-8113. 70 years since the publication of 1984. How has it held up to the test of time? Better than I wish it had. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 70 years since uh, George Orwell, actually Eric Blair, writing under the pen name of George Orwell, published 1984. Oh, I know, everybody was required to read it in school, but if you haven't dusted off a copy lady, later, <laughs> lately, thank you, it's, uh, it may be a little bit shocking to see just how much of, of the, the kind of dystopian atmosphere and the, the tools of tyranny that Orwell portrayed in 1984 have come to be or are becoming a regular part of our lives. No, we're not under full-fledged, you know, ing totalitarianism. 
But there are some parallels that uh, are, are very interesting for those who are paying attention. Let's go to the phone. I've got Sam from Missouri on the line with me from uh, Missouri Liberty Radio. Hey, how's it going, Sam? It is going fantastic. The weather is fine. We're just enjoying life, and uh, it's a beautiful day. We're going to try to get out and do a lot of uh, walking, get a lot of exercise in today, and uh, it's just a, uh, just a wonderful day. Um, what I wanted to point out is um, some of you uh, may or may not have seen an article that ran last week uh, in several places as regarding uh, several places regarding an outage by Google. And uh, apparently, a lot of services that we don't even think about being on Google servers wind up there, including some of Apple stuff as well. And uh, but what a lot of people started finding out was that their um, they couldn't control their air conditioning in their homes through their uh, Nest thermostats, or they couldn't control the uh, ability to get in and out of their houses when uh, they were subscribed to a lot of these smart home uh, features because apparently what it turns out is that whenever you use one of those uh, smart apps or something to uh, control an aspect of your home, it doesn't go directly to the equipment that's in your home. It goes to one of the servers that um, that hosts all this stuff. So if that server goes down for whatever reason, then you can't get in or, or uh, get in your house or control your heating and air conditioning system and probably a whole plethora of other things at this point. That's a little bit spooky. I mean, I don't want to sound like a control freak, but uh, hey, when it comes to the thermostat... <laughs> I, I don't, even my kids know, don't mess around with that, much less, you know, some third party who knows where. Yeah, and that's the problem, because if it's hosted on some server somewhere, what else can happen? Could somebody hack into that uh, server uh, and uh, gain access to various parts of your house that uh, you don't want them to have access to? You know, there's, there's just so many problems with this. You know, I'm I will be old fashioned till the day I die. Just give me a key and a regular plain old door lock and I'm happy. I don't need any of this stuff. I don't need a an S thermostat to control the air conditioning system. Uh in fact even these setback thermostats that you find, Brian, these new electronic stats that allow you to set a temperature for different parts of the day or night. Uh I never liked them because I wind up having to override the settings anyway half the time whenever I tried to use one because uh, it would decide to change on one day when I decided I didn't want the setting the next day. So I finally just said, forget it. I'll just uh, turn all that stuff off and just run it as a plain old thermostat. But uh, basically uh, where I'm coming from on this is it's getting increasingly hard to find appliances that don't have all this smart stuff in it, and we better get our heads wrapped around this and figure out what's going on before this stuff takes us over is what I'm what I'm gathering. And I'm saying this as a person that's, I'm not anti-technology. I mean, look at the technology used, that you're using to do this radio show. Exactly. And I, do, and, and I do with mine. I mean, we live in an exciting age in some ways. There's a lot of stuff that truly does benefit us. But what we have to do... Basically, let's break it down to this. You want to be on the driver's seat of technology, not technology being in the driver's seat uh, against you instead. Amen. I, I'm with you there. I love the convenience, but, uh, you know, i I got to ask you, did, did you have to read, were you required to read 1984 as you were growing up? No, I wasn't required to read it, but I have read it, and I have... Um, 
I have uh, had a chance to uh, check out the uh, the movie 1984 as well, and um, but it is something. And you want the you want the original book. You don't want uh, there were. I think there was a later version that was put out as more of a contemporary version. They kind of cleaned up the stuff a little bit that they didn't want the public to uh, be really looking at. But if you get the original movie 1984, I suggest you get it uh, because I've often stated that. They tell us a lot of times what's coming through the movies. I've heard that, and I'm still my my jury is still out. But but I I've wondered sometimes if it's a form of conditioning. Yeah, well, see that's how they do it. It's subtly. They don't just come right out and say we're going to do this. I mean, they but through the the things that are acted out, then eventually you see in real life a lot of times uh, what happened in the movies in a lot of cases and uh so um you know and here we are like you said with all these screens and stuff but basically where i want to leave everybody before you go jumping off into some piece of technology try to understand and dig into how it works in other words if you've got a um if you're going to get into some sort of a smart app to control stuff how does it communicate with those devices number one does it go through a cloud service number two uh, always remember that you're, um, you're, you may be introducing another security problem because it's constantly a cat and mouse game. How we're, um, for every security hole that's patched up, somebody always finds another one. You know, I just don't like software or firmware running on devices controlling uh, access to my house or controlling the appliances because if somebody can hack into those things remotely, I mean, they could potentially burn your house down. I mean, can you imagine somebody turning on the stove or the microwave when oh, you're not there? Yeah, that that could be scary. Yeah. So just some things to think about. Okay. Again, not anti-technology, but we want responsible technology that we control, not technology that controls us. Here, here. Sam, thanks so much for your call. You bet. 801-331-8113. Let's go over a couple other things here that Orwell introduced us to that, that again, this, this was in a novel that was published 70 years ago, but tell me that you don't see this today. Orwell introduced us to the wholesale suppression of independent thought through an official language called Newspeak and the criminal offense of thought crime. In other words, if you used unapproved words or if you thought unapproved thoughts, you could be punished for that. <laughs> we don't have anything like that, do we? Keep listening here. The inversion of reality was also a very key characteristic of party rule. They had slogans like war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. I don't have to tell you, you know, what the social justice warriors or the politically correct do when it comes to uh, controlling the language we can use, the words that you can use, the images you can use. And, And it doesn't have to necessarily be about anything particularly governmental. I just watched uh, a town where I used to live, Cedar City, Utah, people at each other's throats over the mascot at the local high school. You can't call yourselves the Cedar Redmond. Why, that's insensitive. I mean, it's it's a mascot they've had for generations. And by the way, it wasn't a, just to be clear. The mascot of the Redmond was a proud, admirable, intimidating kind of mascot it was uh, you know you were redmond don't mess with us 
but it was portrayed as, but it's insensitive and we have to change it. And good heavens, people are, are they, they were just, you know, at each other's throats over it. That's not the part that bothers me so much. I mean, look, it's, it, it bugs me, but I don't exactly walk on eggshells and I don't encourage you to. What bothers me is how authorities in our time have this similar penchant for slogans that purport to say one thing while meaning something that's diametrically opposite. A good example of this would be the Affordable Care Act, which made health insurance decidedly unaffordable while forcing people to pay for it, whether they needed it or not. Or the Patriot Act, which strips away natural rights that protect us from government abuse, not to protect us, but to protect the system that's doing the abuse. There is one more thing, and it's the two minutes hate. We'll come back to that just the other side of these messages. This is Loving Liberty. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right, I'll get the last of this 1984 stuff out of my system here, but I, I just feel like we could not let the 70th anniversary of the publication of 1984 pass without uh, taking a closer look and just trying to see how did it hold up to the test of time. And it turns out that it held up surprisingly well. If you remember, in 1984, the obedient masses were required to profess faith in the party that ruled them, with a daily exercise called the two minutes hate. This is where the people were expected to demonstrate their loyalty by openly and obsessively expressing. And by that, I mean screaming their hatred of the government's enemies, whether real or imagined. Now, I don't know if it's government so much that is is pushing this today, but it's a tactic that can be recognized in our time by what happens to someone who is perceived to have engaged in thought crime. And the best example I can think of is what happened to the Covington High School students earlier this year at a pro-life rally in Washington, D.C., in which they were accused of being racially insensitive. Remember the kid standing there smiling as this uh, this Native American activist came up to him banging on a drum? Uh, you know, the the news media, the way it was reported... Shaded the story in such a way that, well, these kids confronted this uh, this veteran Native American activist and they surrounded him and smirked in his face while wearing their Make America Great Again hats. But that wasn't even what happened. And so a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon denouncing them. Let's dox these little blankety blanks and let's make them pay. They should suffer for what they did. How racially insensitive. I mean, the, the, the spittle flinging was absolutely 100% in line with what Orwell described in the two minutes hate. And yet those who withheld judgment and said, I'd like to know a little bit more about this, lo and behold, a few days later, more video came out, about an hour and a half of video came out that gave all the needed context that was, was required to see what had really happened. Yeah, the kids were wearing Make America Great Again hats. Who cares? The bigger question is, was their behavior peaceful? And it was. They were the ones being heckled. In fact, there was a there was a group of um, 
I think they call themselves black Hebrew Israelites. This is really a noxious group, by the way. I mean, they are every bit the uh, the counterparts of Fred Phelps Westboro Baptist Church in the way they go about publishing their, their message, which is ridicule, denunciation, baiting, and just trying to goad people into some kind of a violent reaction. And the kids were the target of these guys, as well as the Native American activists. They were, they were harping on him. And this was all very clear to anybody who took the time to actually watch the video and go, ooh, hey, that, uh, that didn't un- unfold the way that we were told it did. But in the meantime, these kids were getting legitimate death threats. That's what Two Minutes Hate looks like. Why were they targeted as such? Well, because they were accused of being racially insensitive and being supporters of Donald Trump. Although I repeat myself, at least that's how it would seem in the minds of some who are looking for that reason to be offended. And they were targeted for the two minutes hate as the faithful demonstrated their loyalty to our politically correct big brother. Yes, the virtue signals were strong that day. There are plenty of other examples, but that just serves as one of the more visible ones. And the point here, again, is not that we're a mirror image of Oceania. But we definitely appear to be moving in a direction that could make us one. And so I'm asking you to consider that if if the definition of a classic, whether it's a classic in art or it's a classic in math or it's a classic in literature, It's a work that we can learn something from every time that we access it. If that's the case, why don't we rediscover what 1984 has to teach us? You probably have some vacation time. That'd be a great time to sit down and uh, maybe dust off a copy and just read it. You don't have to see conspiracies everywhere and you don't have to blame everything on them to recognize that what what George Orwell was talking about was human nature. And I know there are people who try to excuse, well, well, how can you take his word on anything? He was a huge fan of democratic socialism. He was. But he was also a huge opponent of totalitarianism. Well, he was only writing about the Soviet Union. That may very well have been the model. Big Brother may have actually been, he may have been thinking of Joseph Stalin when he was thinking about Big Brother. But it was the quirks of human nature that he was addressing and identifying. That's what made the, the book relevant in, in the time where it was published and even more relevant in the times in which we live. Here's the kicker. This is what's so difficult for us and, and for myself included. OK, I don't you know, I don't have this lofty sense. I don't I don't have this view from up here in the rarefied air where I see things more clearly than you. There's this normalcy bias that we all have because the references we have to the world around us are are things that have come to us gradually. It wasn't like we woke up one morning and everything had shifted. Everything had changed. You know, that kind of change would be obvious enough. You know, we would think, well, there's going to be some jolt that would make everybody go, whoa, wait a minute. My car is spying on me, but it comes gradually. It's in fact, it's so gradually it comes creeping in on cat's feet and and it's just a little bit here and a little bit there. And and if if you didn't protest or you didn't raise uh, you know concern with what happened two, three, four steps before, 
then why are you doing it this way? It's such a small little incremental change. I mean, it's not a big deal. But the consistency of those little bits of incrementalism add up. And there does come a time where you start to realize, holy cow, we're not in a very healthy situation. Now, what to do about it? That's very much up for debate. I think the obvious answer for a lot of folks is, well, that's when we get involved politically and politically we go after, you know, this and politically we do. You go and you vote. That's what you do. But I'm going to submit to you that there's more that we could do that has nothing to do with politics and has everything to do with things that are actually under our control. Okay, get ready. I'm, I'm about to butcher another sacred cow. Well, you know, the civic sacrament of our society is to go and vote and participate. We are a participatory type of government. Yes, we can be. And sometimes you can actually make a difference. Although um, I'm going to suggest that probably the likelihood of you having influence is going to be felt at the lowest levels of government, not at the highest. The system has arranged itself over the years to where influence is definitely for sale. But the vast majority of us really can't afford to play at that level. If you want to pay for play, if if you want to... uh, you want to access your, your congressman and be welcomed with open arms? You need to be a lobbyist, and you need to have a big, fat check in your hands and promises of how we're going to throw our support behind you and make sure that you stay in power. And in return, you know, you're going to help us because we're doing some rent-seeking. We want you to favor this program or favor this policy that enables us to, to make money. Or we're going to engage in what's called log-rolling, We'll support you on this. This is what politicians do. I'll support you on this uh, particular policy, but you support me on that one. It'll scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. I don't tell you this to discourage you and it's not to, to make you think that, well, it's all rigged and it's all against us. The point I want you to consider is that politics has about exactly as much influence in our lives as we are willing to give it. Now, look, there are some things that are pretty tough to avoid. Okay, you don't pay your taxes. Somebody's going to come after you at some point and either dispossess you of your money, your property, or maybe even your freedom. But once you understand the dynamic behind taxes, they're never voluntary. There's always an implied threat. Once you understand how politicians work to make themselves relevant in your lives. Well, yes, I've butted into your life, Mr. Hyde, but I want, to, uh, I want you to know I expect your thanks for being there to, to micromanage as many aspects of your life as possible. I know this sounds radical. I know this sounds like something that, that only a crazy man would say. Maybe I'm crazy for saying this. But there are so many areas of our lives where we can simply withdraw our support, withdraw our consent, and live without begging permission from this authority or that authority to have a happy, peaceful, productive life. We've just gotten out of the habit. I'll do a show on this in in the near future. We'll talk about what's called agorism. A-G-O-R-I-S-M. Agorism. You can look it up if it it really makes you curious, but in a nutshell, what agorism is, is the reduction of your governmental footprint. You know how we're all about reducing our carbon footprint to save the planet? If you want to save your freedom, 
learn how to reduce your governmental footprint. It's really exhilarating, and it involves uh, just stop asking for permission for every little thing. You want to cut your kid's hair? Cut your kid's hair. All right, enough subversive stuff for one day. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right, let's uh, let's move on here. I've I've done the 1984 thing. I've got it out of my system. Now, look, if you have uh, thoughts or comments, uh, feel free. 801-331-8113. You can also access me on the Loving Liberty app. You've got it on your smartphone, right? Right. Okay, you can get this at Google Play. You can get it in the Apple, whatever store it's called now. Since iTunes is going away, I'm... I'm in a little bit of a state of flux here trying to decide what uh, what name to use. But it's a free app. But, yes, you can communicate with the host uh, even even as I'm uh, doing my thing. be great to hear from you. So here's, here's something. This is a trend that uh, I, I would not have foreseen, but okay, check it out. Some people are sick of drinking. And where there's a need, somebody sees opportunity. So investors are now betting on what they call the sober curious. This is an article from CNN Business. And, I, okay. Look, the, I'm, I'm getting older. I never really was part of the nightclub scene. I never, I never was really, you know, going out drinking with friends. That was just, that was never my thing. But for a lot of young people, that's a very social kind of thing. But now, apparently, there is a, a larger trend that is starting to, uh, to come forward, which people are looking for an opportunity to socialize. They want a bar-like location, but they want to do it without having to drink alcohol which can be expensive, to put it mildly, and also can be a little bit problematic because uh, how do I put this nicely? People who get drunk sometimes uh, don't think as clearly as they could. I'm sorry, that's as, that's as soft as I can pedal it for you. So I'm reading about this bar called The Getaway in Brooklyn. It's a sober bar, a new kind of dry nightlife option cropping up in New York City. And apparently, according to this article, it's part of a larger trend. People are paying greater attention to their mental health and wellness. And that means many Americans are now specifically looking to reduce their alcohol intake. People of all ages are drinking less beer, which if the beer commercials haven't lied to me, means uh, there's a whole lot less fun going on in the world. While millennials are drinking less overall. And Silicon Valley, by the way, is taking note with tech companies reevaluating their alcohol policies and investors looking to capitalize on people who prefer not to drink. Silicon Valley entrepreneur Justin Kahn, Kahn rather, he's the CEO of law tech startup Atrium, told CNN Business, it's such a part of the culture, especially here in San Francisco, that I'd go out for dinner and have two or three drinks every day. But he says he's seen a shift in his tech circle. He says, I was at a dinner with a lot of tech people last night. Probably half the people weren't drinking. Can announced last month in a post on Twitter that he was giving up alcohol. He called drinking an unhealthy habit that had gotten in the way of his experiencing life. Now, it wasn't exactly unusual for Can to share personal details about himself. He once live-streamed his life through the startup he co-founded in 2007 called Justin TV, which ultimately became Twitch the popular live streaming platform for gamers now owned by Amazon. The same day he tweeted, 
Ken launched a group on chat app Telegram to connect with others who were similarly deciding to get sober from alcohol, and he didn't expect that more than a thousand people would join him. Now, apparently the sales of alcoholic beverages have been declining. Big alcohol companies ranging from Heineken to uh, AB InBev, that's the owner of popular beer brands such as Budweiser, they see an opportunity. So they're investing in non or even low alcohol drinks. So, too, startup investors and entrepreneurs are hoping to cater to the sober curious people who, for the sake of wellness, are reevaluating their relationships with alcohol and how often they drink. Now, the emergence of sober bars is one of the signals that investor Anu Dougal points to when talking about the trend of not drinking. Dougal, who is based in New York City, said that like Can, she's noticing a number of people who are choosing not to drink. Her firm, Female Founders Fund, which has backed popular consumer startups like Rent the Runway, is a recent investor in Kin Euphorics. Kin's first product is a non-alcoholic beverage called High Road. R-H-O-D-E. It's part adaptogen, which is a non-toxic plant claimed to have de-stressing effects, part nootropics, a supplement said to help with cognitive functions, and part botanics. My, that does sound trendy. On its website, the company notes that its statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and that its product is not intended to diagnose, prevent, treat, or cure any disease. Okay, the lawyers, (laughs) they got their disclaimer in there. But rather than an indulgence, Kin reasons that the consumption of its product is more for self-care after dark. It wants to create a new market of products that don't contain alcohol and also aren't laden with sugar. It was co-founded by Matthew Cobble, co-founder of Silicon Valley meal replacement startup Soylent, and Jen Batchelor, who serves as CEO. Now get this, they've already attracted venture capital firms including Canaan Partners, Refactor Capital, Weekend Fund, and 50 Years, which aims to invest in companies using business to solve the world's biggest problems. Like finding something to drink without alcohol, apparently. The company declined to disclose how much funding it has received. But they did say this, sober curiosity is a real thing. So what Ken is trying to do is trying to create more options for consumers. A lot of folks feel their choices are either go out and drink alcohol or you stay home alone. And if those are the two choices, then the feeling is, well, something's broken. You can do the feel-good thing and still be out at a bar. You can still take a client out, but don't necessarily have to include alcohol in that equation. And while it's investing in new alcohol-free companies, apparently Silicon Valley is also re-examining its own relationship with alcohol. Alcohol has been one of the perks associated with tech and startup cultures over the years, with young companies embracing the idea of hustling hard, but also bonding over a drink or several with colleagues. And inevitably, the availability of alcohol in offices has come under scrutiny when companies run into unflattering alcohol-fueled incidents. One of the more memorable ones when HR services startup Zenefits banned alcohol consumption after reportedly finding cigarettes, beer cups, and used condoms in the company's stairwell. Well, after coordinated walkouts by employers and contractors in November over its handling of sexual harassment accusations, Google announced a number of changes to its work culture, including cutting down on excessive drinking. The company said harassment is never accessible and alcohol is never an excuse, but one of the common factors among the harassment complaints made at Google is that the perpetrator had been drinking in roughly 20% of the cases. 
So Google says they will charge their leaders with discouraging workers from excessive drinking. Some teams limit workers to two drinks per event. Got to admit, that's that's a very curious development. And for the record, I I don't support prohibition, whether it's of alcohol or whether it's of, you know, other substances that are intoxicating. I don't support it. I think that's a decision people should be making on their own. Without the heavy hand of government, you know, hovering over them or otherwise pressuring them, you do this or you do that. Now, having said that, I do think it's pretty cool that people are waking up to, hey, maybe there's a better way to do things than going out and, you know, drinking. I mean, if, if they do it in moderation, it's their choice. And, if, and, and as long as they're not infringing on somebody else's rights, anything that's peaceful, I think that people should be free to do. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that, yeah, you know, if you just would indulge in more intoxicating substances, why you'd be giving your brain an upgrade? Because I don't think that's what happens. I like the idea that people could be persuaded that there is a better, more productive way to live. And that's that's what I'm hearing. At least that's that's what I'm seeing in some of the comments made in this article. I don't think alcohol is going to go away on a broad scale. It's been around for thousands of years. People have, have, uh, you know, even during times of active prohibition, it still was extremely popular. I do like seeing government restricted to its proper role, which is holding people accountable only when they have actually caused harm to another person or their property and otherwise letting us make the decisions for ourselves. But the fact is now there are people who are trying to make the case that, hey, we can still have the social life. We can still do the socializing without alcohol. And I say more power to them for offering that alternative. Somebody pointed this out. I saw a meme the other day on, on Facebook that, that I thought was very curious. And it said, alcohol is the only drug where you have to explain yourself for not indulging in it. Think about that. Have you ever been out on a, you know, a, a social event or somewhere? Somebody offers you a drink. Hey, let me buy you a drink. Have a glass of wine. Have some champagne. Would you like a mimosa? Something like that. And if you don't take it, it's not enough to simply say, no, thanks. You have to give some kind of an excuse, or at least you have to justify, I don't drink, or I'm in recovery, or whatever it may be. But it's almost like you're expected. You need to explain yourself. Why aren't you drinking with the rest of us? I can't think of a single other drug, pharmaceutical or illicit or otherwise... The people have to explain themselves when they decline the offer to here. Would you like to indulge in some of this? What a strange world we live in. Stick around. Hour two of Loving Liberty is just around the corner. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 